50 minutes, where two therapists talk more than they listen. I'm your host, Dr. Tamara Sills. Welcome to season four. This podcast has been an example to me of how diving into one's own passions can evolve into something much bigger. I started this podcast as a way to engage in meaningful conversations with other therapists in ways that were more diverse and creatively stimulating than my clinical practice was at the time. To be able to grow the podcast and evolve it into a continuing education program that allows me to generate some income while staying in alignment with my values has been truly an unexpected gift. Thank you to all the listeners and to those of you who've registered for CE credits or have become members. Thank you so much. I am so grateful. If you haven't earned a CE credit yet, don't wait until your CE deadline. Get credit for what you're already listening to. It really is as simple as logging in and taking the post-test. You can also try our free CE credit course, Writing Therapy Notes. So click the link in the show notes for details. And also remember that many therapists are eligible for CE credits through APA or CPA, not just psychologists. So I hope you'll check that out. I do have one request for you, though, to start this year. Please find your favorite episode of This Hour Has 50 Minutes and send it to another psychologist or therapist. Help spread the word so that I can continue to offer you wonderful content from experts around the world. Now to today's episode, episode 47 with Dr. Jen Blanchett. Dr. Jen Blanchett is a licensed psychologist, neuro coach, and private practice owner. Her specialization includes psychotherapy after brain injury, incorporating cognitive rehabilitation, trauma therapies, and mindfulness approaches. Dr. Blanchett is the host of the TBI Therapist podcast, which explores the intersections of mental health, trauma, and brain injury. She's a brain health consultant and coach for leaders, professionals, and athletes. And with four degrees in psychology and deep knowledge of neuroscience, she brings her knowledge to leaders and athletes to function at their best. Today, she helps us break down how psychologists may be better equipped to support TBI than they think, how to leverage the core pillars of brain health, using cognitive rehabilitation, and dispels myths around treatment for TBIs. Dr. Jen highlights the importance of understanding the emotional trauma part of the traumatic brain injury. Let's get started. Jen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. I'm very excited for the conversation as well. What led you to being interested in traumatic brain injury and brain health in particular? Yeah, I call it serendipity and luck is how I got into working with this population. So if there's psychologists on here, you know that we need a postdoctoral year in most states in the US. You're in Canada, so I don't know what postdoc is like for you guys. I was going to start somewhere down in Virginia and doing something completely different, like family therapy related in-home stuff. And the last economic downturn, I lost that position due to the company going under, which required us to lose our home, my husband and I. And luckily we have supports. And so it's a blessing we could go stay with parents, right? So that's not always a reality for other people. So we did have that and we came to the beautiful state of Maine. And I was like sitting about six months without a placement. And 
I had like made, you know, I was trying to get a placement so hard. I was messaging like independent people, but in my state particularly, there's not that many postdoctoral placements available. Yeah. Like it's, you have to kind of fit things together. And it was at a weird part of the year. So like maybe I had to wait another year and I already had like a gap year between internship anyway, because I didn't match. So I was already at a place where I was like, I don't even care like <laughs> what happens. So anyway, I cold called this neuro rehab center and I was just like, you know, I really, I really need, I would love to have an interview. And they, they wanted more of a therapist as opposed to a neuropsychologist who would do testing mm-hmm. because uh, they needed somebody in the neuro rehab program to provide those services. So I just went in with a lot of energy. I pumped Beyonce and I was just <laughs> a lot of good energy about it and told them that I was passionate about therapy, that I loved Yalom and I love process groups and I can like, I'm pretty moldable and I can go in different places. And they were just like, okay, yeah, let's do it. And so when I got there, I kind of fell, I, well, I was like, what do I, I don't know anything about TBIs. I don't know anything about neuro rehab. I just felt really underprepared for my training to understand that unique problem. So I was looking at the Bible, uh, the Lezak text of neuropsychology. So that was a big, if you ever need to know a little bit about neuropsychology, just get the Lezak. They even just call it the Lezak. So I was looking up that book and leaning on my my supervisor and things like that. Uh, but really, I mean, it was learning a lot from clients about this particular problem. And I was struck how common it actually is that we don't have specific training. I mean, maybe if you went in the neuropsych track in your program, you would have gotten more specific training, but I didn't at the time. Yeah. So it was just a lot of like kind of on the fly learning and then going to trainings and more trainings and learning more and more. Uh, but I just found it was a unique issue that not a lot of people knew a lot about. And I couldn't refer to neuropsychologists don't really do therapy. They just don't. They do testing. Yeah. So they understand the problem, they can diagnose the problem. And then they're like, okay, from the report, like go do CBT, which I think is crazy anyway. If I do CBT with one of my brain injury clients, they're, they're looking at me like, what, what are you talking about? Like we're doing homework and I can't even right. read right. for five minutes? Right. No. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> but I do it in a way, I mean, I do it in more of like a more verbal way or I do very short worksheets in the moment, kind of talk them through it. So it's not that I don't do... CBT, but I, I think I'm often looking at nervous system regulation prior to doing some kind of intervention like that. That's a great start. And I think I've noticed also that lack of providers to whom we can refer. And I agree, even here, a lot of the neuropsychologists are focusing much more on testing and evaluation than they are on therapy. And so there is this disconnect with some great recommendations and some great assessors and evaluators. And then this dearth of providers who can follow up with them. And at least here, a lot of the services are very disconnected in terms of they might be followed up in a hospital by this particular clinic, but they're not really focusing on the mental health component or finding a psychotherapist who is going to work or a psychologist who's going to work that's not just monitoring and evaluating is really tricky. So do you find the same thing that those services are really kind of piecemeal and not well integrated? Yeah, I do find that certainly, you know, I think it's, it's the medical model. They're just kind of like, okay, we're going to diagnose and, and then go see a therapist pretty much. And 
you know, a lot of therapists aren't trained in those particular issues or don't feel competent to provide that service, but are really, you know, well suited to hold, I think, the emotional difficulties that come out of a brain injury. And, uh, you know, to get some specialized training, I don't think it would take that much. It wouldn't be that much of a stretch for a therapist to take on a client with a concussion or a brain injury, but just maybe getting some consultation and support it seems overwhelming sometimes to clinicians. So just be like, well, uh, like, I don't, I don't know about TBIs or concussion. Like it seems more medical and maybe they need to go to that neuropsychologist first or whatever before I feel comfortable or refer out. But I just find there's not many referrals. Like there's probably a few providers in my state that do this kind of work. But I mean, I found the work, I, uh, you know, a lot of nervous system regulation. So my EMDR training really prepared me very well. I felt like I needed certain competencies to to work with this population. So if you've had a brain injury, we can kind of sum that up that you have trauma because if either it's perceived trauma or an actual trauma where they it was a life or death situation. With concussion, you know, sometimes they didn't have a loss of consciousness. So they may not at the time have perceived that that was a life or death situation but maybe later on the circumstances that were surrounding that concussion became something then that was traumatic because they had multiple losses. They had lots of issues following that and felt really unmoored by the, you know, the circumstances that came out of that diagnosis. I'd love to dive deeper right into what you were saying, because I think for many who might not know about this domain to the depth that you do, is that comment about nervous system dysregulation. Because I think now, as you've described it through the lens of trauma, I'm sure lights are going off for people and making that connection. But can you share a little bit more about when you talk about exploring nervous system dysregulation first, perhaps, Tell me more about that. So what do you see from clients that might be referred to you that is giving you these indicators that you should be looking at nervous system dysregulation? Because I think many would default to, okay, we might be looking at attention or memory, which I'm sure you do, but tell me a little bit more about this nervous system dysregulation piece because I find that part fascinating. Yeah, And I think it it plays certainly into the cognitive issues. So I just don't start with cognitive retraining or any kind of memory compensatory strategies right out of the gate because I find that, you know, pretty much we need to make sure that that person can do some basic things and not feel overwhelmed by their basic daily activities of living. So many times people after a concussion, they're more prone to dysautonomia, to to issues related to the nervous system and the interplay between the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. And that there's multiple reasons for that, that 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 happens. We're not quite sure why they have a harder time calibrating that nervous system dysregulation. So the strategies that a lot of therapists knows that a lot of therapists do have in their toolbox is grounding skills. Okay. How can you kind of get back in your body? How can you feel like you know where you are in space? Because a lot of times people feel like I don't even know what the you know what I should do first. Okay, let's let's do some grounding skills because their memory and their attention is really impaired, so it triggers that anxiety response. And so I think working on that first before working on attention and memory is really helpful because it can help them kind of go through that more mindfully. So I often start there and also looking at kind of core pillars of brain health. So those would be, the core pillars would be sleep, 
you know, many times uh, with a lot of psychiatric issues, sleep is impaired. With TBI, it is impaired dramatically. So especially early on in injury. So I often try to work on some sleep hygiene stuff, some CBT, uh, insomnia stuff with them. I may not use a whole protocol, but maybe look at their room or some thinking around sleep and help them just get some strategies because when people sleep better, they feel better. So, you know, we can affect a lot of change in the basics. We don't think that we're really doing much, but we are, you know, we're really helping that person. So nutrition is huge with TBI as well. So there's a lot of inflammation that's happening in the brain. So with concussion, you oftentimes have a diffuse axonal injury, which means the neurons shear. So that creates a lot of inflammation in the brain. So anything we can do that can reduce some inflammation, you know, is great. Also with nutrition, people get crazy. So they're like, maybe I should do keto. Maybe I should, you know, do this and this diet and that diet. And I'm just like, okay, I kind of more coach people towards like the mind diet, which is I want you to add nutrition versus taking nutrition away. Mm -hmm. And it really has to be very simple. So if you have memory issues and trying to have someone do a complex diet, that's a recipe for disaster. So it's more like, okay, can we add blueberries to the breakfast? Can we make sure you're getting your water? So more simple kind of habit changes is what I like to think about with this population versus let's shift your whole diet because (laughs) I can only, I, one of the people I interviewed on my podcast, uh, long-term survivor, 20 years, and she could only figure out like, okay, I know I can do cottage cheese. And that was her meal a lot of times Mm. because it was easy and she knew she got some protein. And so if I could say, yeah, hey, cottage cheese, just add some blueberries to that. Maybe we'll just pair two things together, like banana, peanut butter. So if you can think through kind of simple things with folks that can really like make some difference in their thinking and in their just brain function. It's really helpful. Belonging is huge. So mm-hmm. uh, concussion and TBI can be very isolating. And it's one of the biggest problems that I, I help people with because a lot of times, you know, if they've stopped working, if they're not in school, they're disconnected from those communities that really help keep, keep them very healthy. So it's really important that we try to reconnect them and therapists are great at doing that. So mm-hmm. I would say if you're kind of doing these things, you're doing a lot with this population. I love that you're highlighting these core pillars. I know there's still more to share, but it's just so striking that these things that most of us have in our tool belts already can be applied once you're understanding the connection, once we're understanding the why these things are applicable as opposed to them just being blanket healthful things to do. But you elucidating these connections, I think, is really helpful for people. I know for me, it's making a lot of sense when you when you're talking about the diet or, you know, those. I mean, I'm always a fan of banana and peanut butter, so I can get behind that recommendation any day. But these ideas that you're sharing, I think, are strategies that will really resonate with many therapists because they'll start to make the connection between those strategies and specific results of a TBI. So I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. So <laughs> please continue. Yeah, and and one of the big ones as well is, is movement and exercise. So, you know, I think one of the myths with concussion is that people used to recommend that after concussion, you stay in a dark room for two weeks. And that is old, old, old knowledge from like the nineties, maybe two thousands. I don't know. So the recent knowledge on concussion is that we want kind of like after surgery, 
like maybe an immediate, like 24 to 48 hours of rest. So if they're really feeling out of it, yeah, you know, you can rest, you know, engage if you can in your normal activities, no, you know, heavy activities, of course, and we don't want to do extreme exercise or anything like that. But if you could do a light walk, then that's great. But then you're going to kind of step up your activity each day. So there's a stepwise increase in that activity, both cognitively and physically. So if it's an athlete, they're going to work through that protocol to kind of get themselves back to return to play. For an adult, they're going to work through a protocol to return to a cognitive activity. So yes, we're going to limit screens early on, but it's not like a ban on screens. You know, you want to incorporate screen use throughout that concussion recovery because in your life, you use a lot of screens, right? So if we say no screens, then they become more symptomatic once they add them back in. But if it's more of a gradual kind of increase, then it doesn't look as dramatic. So going back to the exercise piece, you know, what they found is that aerobic exercise specifically reduces concussion and TBI symptoms. So in the more quickly it's integrated into care. So if you get a concussion, like recently my brother actually got a concussion from an accident. Oh, no. And, you know, he's kind of like pinging me. I was like, just, you know, keep walking, keep moving. That's kind of the best thing. Eating really great food, getting your sleep, you know, kind of really that taking care of your body is taking care Mm -hmm. of your brain. So thinking of all those things and he did pretty well. Like he didn't have any lasting effects and he was a football player. So I was happy, happy about that. That didn't have any of those things. That's, and, and a lot of people do get through a concussion that way. Old research tells us about 80% of people get through a concussion after 30 days that aren't symptomatic. New literature is looking more at 50% of people have some difficulties after 30 days post-concussion. So I think some of the literature is pointing to people are struggling more and are more symptomatic longer. So, and I'm speaking of concussion because that's a majority of your TBI. So mild TBI or a concussion, that is the same thing, by the way. A lot of people don't realize that a concussion is a mild TBI. And there's a whole discussion in in the community about that and the stigma like with TBI and concussion and athletes seem to get through concussion fine, but um, it's uh, one of the biggest the disability categories. So it really is very serious. It's very common. So I think we have to continue to think through this in a, um, a stepwise way and really look to the literature of what it's telling us. And th- there's resources out there. So just because you get a client and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't, they got a concussion, like I need to refer them out. Like, I don't even know what to do with this. Consult first, like think about consulting, especially if you have a relationship with that client because that relationship and you doing the great clinical work that you do goes a long way towards them improving symptoms. I'm glad that you highlighted also the shifting research about the duration of symptoms. I know I've had some clients in the past who were struggling with some of their care management team who were giving them messages that their recovery was taking too long, essentially. You know, that certainly wasn't phrased that way, but those were the messages that they were getting. And it would be things like, you shouldn't still be experiencing symptoms after, you know, three weeks, a month or whatever it was. And so I know a lot of them felt- You're supposed to be better. Like 80% of people are better- so there's something kind of wrong with you. You know, a lot of the work I do with clients or have done with clients has been validation that this is real. Yeah. Honestly. From the clients that I've worked with, and it's only been a handful, but for some of them, it really did put their 
greater care at risk because they were reticent to go back for their follow-ups because they were being given these messages and they already were feeling confused in a way about what they should or shouldn't be doing and getting mixed messages about their own experiences. And then when you layer on the trauma piece, which is intertwined, then of course it's, it stands to reason why clients can be bewildered and, and feel quite lost when, when they're getting these messages. Yeah, hundred percent. I think validating them and validating also like that there's, there's not great answers sometimes for people that have long-term symptoms post-concussion and uh, that we are still figuring it out. And so kind of conceptualizing it as, and I don't, sometimes I do this with clients, sometimes I don't, but conceptualizing it after years of symptoms in more of a chronic illness and how we, how we think about chronic illness and how some providers tell them there's no answer to that and how disconcerting that can be. So I think validating all of those things as well and, and helping them manage their symptoms which therapists, I think there's a lot of therapists that specialize in more chronic illness. And those therapists I think would be especially skilled at working with a concussion or TBI survivor. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it brings up a lot of questions that I have and some of them relate to these trauma symptoms or anxiety that come for many individuals and the overlap also for somatic symptoms and the somatization. So can you share a little bit more about what you've seen? I mean, I know I've had clients where it's that feeling that when they do try to do some things that they in theory are able to do or should be allowed to like go for a walk or go out with friends and keep it low key, that Mm -hmm. their own anxiety and trauma then end up sort of perpetuating the feeling that actually this is not okay. And it's, I need to go back and rest. So can you talk a little bit more about, about that? Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the frequent places I talk about anxiety with concussion and TBI survivors is the grocery store, because there's a lot of sensory overload that happens at the grocery store. I, you know, sometimes get overloaded at the grocery store and I am neurotypical. So, you know, I understand that piece, but I think if someone had gone to a store or gone to an overstimulating environment early in their recovery, and then they kind of became overwhelmed, overstimulated, and then their anxiety spiked as well, it can kind of lead to some agoraphobia, some panic attacks, which I've treated in that they didn't realize that, hey, I was symptomatic in that time. And, you know, I I really couldn't handle that environment in that present moment, but now things are different and I'm experiencing more anxiety. And I really don't differentiate what one of the two because sometimes they just meld all together and anxiety is part of the diagnosis. Anxiety is part of a TBI. It's part of a concussion. And I think validating, I I think for most people it is. There's not too many folks that that don't struggle. Some, it just looks like more depression and some aren't aware of symptoms. So I've certainly worked with folks who aren't aware of their brain injury symptoms at all and, you know, have more of an autognosia presentation that they're, they're which means unaware of symptoms. They're, they they don't know that their memory is impaired or things are going on. So, yeah, I mean, I would think that's certainly an issue. And then for trauma, if we're thinking about re-injury, so a lot of people get scared by bumps on the head. So yeah. you, need, you need 80 Gs of force 
to have a concussion. So we can kind of think about like what kind of force that would create. And you can kind of like Google like what ADGs of force, like what type of fall that would look like. For clients who haven't had an injury that has that ADGs of force, maybe it was like a bump on a car door, a bump in a door jam. It wasn't that ADGs, but they're still believing that that would cause them to go into symptoms or they believe it has and they have a flare or their anxiety kind of creates that storm in the nervous system yeah. and it does create symptoms. So yeah. everything is related. Our brain and our body is, is super connected, as you know, as, these, as our therapists know. So it can kind of create a flare. So we kind of call those little symptom flares, which can be caused by multiple things, illness, anxiety, situational concerns, sensory overload. The examples you gave are the exact examples that my clients each experience also, where they would come in and say, you know, I've re, I'm re-concussed. I hit my head when I was getting out of the car and I hit it on the, the right. door or the door frame and framing it the way that you just did as a flare as opposed to a re-concussion. A bump exactly. on the head is a trauma trigger. And it's a, it triggers like that anxiety response, also the the symptoms from the concussion. So, <laughs> you know, I think to have that conceptualization is important for therapists to think through. Yeah. Helpful to the client. That's right. And then coming back to exactly what you said at the beginning, that nervous system regulation piece in order to, to manage those trauma triggers that come up. Mm-hmm. And I think early in injury and later in injury, people kind of can start to recognize that. They can see like, okay, like I had a bump on the head and that's scary. And I feel da- like a lot of danger right now, but I'm going to like take it easy for the rest of the day, let myself have a break and then hopefully kind of reassess tomorrow. So you kind of create some plans around if those things happen. And we do know that people who've had a concussion are more prone to multiple concussions. So due to, you know, their, their new physical symptoms Uh, they're more likely to have another fall, for example. So it is important that people get checked out because we know multiple concussions can lead to more cognitive issues and physical issues. So, you know, if, if you can assess and kind of see like, yeah, if you slipped on the ice and hit the back of your head, go get checked out. Like if one in doubt, go to the ER and call it your PCP. Yeah, that makes sense. In terms of the types of symptoms that people report when they see you, you've mentioned they may show up like depression, certainly anxiety. What are some of the things that you see people report when they, when they first come to you after an injury? Yeah. So in, in neural rehab, I would see, so that was my my training. I would see people a little bit more quickly after their injury. So maybe in the months uh, following, sometimes a year after an outpatient, it'd been years after a lot of times Mm. or several months later. So I'd often seen people who've been struggling with symptoms for quite some time. So that looks a little bit different than early in recovery. So many times, again, there'd been, you know, there's, there's issues in their job life. Either they are really struggling in their job or they're not doing their job at all. They hadn't returned to work and they're trying to figure out like, can I go back to my career? Can I, can I not? So making those decisions about kind of that big shift relationship issues are huge. So I've oftentimes I have people's partners come in or family members come in because they are kind of the history of their concussion because there's a lot of memory issues sometimes or that person has just been supportive of them. So many times I'll see a family together, I'll see partners together, 
So that that's also part of the work I found that mm-hmm. family members need that support as well. So I'm also thinking I'm thinking about the caregiver and what they might need if they need individual or you know we can be they can be seen all together and we can kind of work together as a unit on how to get them all help. So I, I do see that that recovery unit as being a f- part of the family. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, so absolutely. Relationships, depression, anxiety, trauma are huge. Uh, personality differences can happen as well. So especially with frontal lobe injuries. So, uh, you know, if we have more of a moderate to severe TBI, you're going to see more personality change that can happen. And I think that impacts the individual a lot. So they, you know, they'll often talk about their pre and post self and trying to understand those differences in the, in themselves and really comparing and trying to get back to their pre-injury self and struggling with that, which is understandable. You know, I think there's a lot of loss and grief. So I I found that kind of, I was kind of a trauma therapist and a grief therapist doing this brain injury work, helping them conceptualize that loss, mourn the losses that they've had in themselves or in relationships, in roles, and then hopefully trying to, you know, accept those and be able to see new identities for themselves in the work. Yeah. And I imagine that in those moderate to severe injuries, as you described, particularly with those personality changes that are are possible for some, that they get intermixed with the emotional reaction to those changes. So it's almost this meta shift, right? Like I imagine Mm -hmm. the grief that might show up as anger and you know, frustration and reactivity that might also be compounding those same personality shifts that might come from that frontal lobe injury. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So there's lots of layers there, certainly that the injury causes certain changes and then they're feeling they're reacting to those changes. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to turn to cognitive rehabilitation and if you could share a little bit more about what that is, and then we can dive into what that looks like practically. Yeah. So when when I was in neuro rehab, I worked within a team. And I think it, I think clients are best served in a team, honestly, yeah. where there's someone looking at them physically with PT, with someone who's t- heading up the OT side of things, whether that be you know fine motor stuff or whether that be more kind of scheduling, tasky kind of OT ish things. Uh, psychologists certainly come in there and therapists can come in there. So I would look at some executive functioning strategies if they needed that, some memory compensatory strategies, OT, and 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 I would piggyback off that a lot. And I do that individually as well. Because I think a lot of people, their memory is just so different after their concussion or TBI. And it's almost like they're trying to access the information in their head and circumvent the old process to create, you know, neuroplasticities on your side, but you have to make that new connection and find a new way to do things. Mm-hmm. So for many people, it's like, I, I don't even know how to do this. Like, can we, and I sometimes come up with very simple strategies. Like I had a teacher one time who couldn't remember something. And so like when a student left the room, which is kind of a big deal. <laughs> so we did a bracelet system where if a and they had this many bracelets, like that was their hall passes, and they would change the bracelet to another arm because it was they needed like a visual. They, yeah. Like writing it down didn't work. So sometimes you had to get really creative with the strategy the client needs. And uh, so I really love the VA's program, and it's f- completely free, which is CogSmart. 
which it's a nice manual and it has kind of an overview of cognitive rehabilitation strategies that therapists can look at to say like, here's a kind of like a basis of information. They have a free client workbook. And so it's, it's really been a, a guide. Also my experience in neuro rehab has been as well, but I generally try to help folks with very simple strategies first. You know, what are, yeah. where, how are they remembering things? What is their one system for remembering something? Is it going to be the phone? Is it going to be the calendar? And some clients like different things. So yeah. the problem is they try to do too many strategies and layer those strategies on top of strategies. And then they're just overwhelmed and overstimulated and can't do what they need to do. So I think having them pick one calendar and the calendar only works if you open it. Yeah. That's another thing. <laughs> Much like many of our strategies, <laughs> or really all of our strategies, they only work if we actually I start them and implement them. I just yes. have some, some people just love the calendar and they'll write all these things in it. I'm like, well, how how you been doing with the calendar? I didn't even look at it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's problem solve. So in there, you have to kind of problem solve the strategy with the client and say, yeah. okay, like I'm hearing that's not working. So is it setting alarms in your phone? So you look at that. Sometimes that works for some people. Other times they have things dinging all the time and they just don't know what, like, I don't know, it just dings all the time. So I don't, yes. I don't really know how to look at it. <laughs> That's it. They're just swiping up notification after notification. Right. Yeah. So if you're ignoring it, it's not working either. So helping them come up with one system is really helpful. Yeah. And then those on-the-fly memory strategies can be, it's, it's really simple things that you can do that most people have knowledge of helping them create something that's really helpful. And I think to have OT on board, especially if there's a lot of memory issues, um, you know, speech actually heads up more of like the memory and um, OT will do more executive functioning, at least in neuro mm-hmm. rehab they did. But they both kind of overlap and do a lot of things. So I kind yeah. of think of OT a lot as like fine motor and calendar people and speech more as like memory language. And that's, that's typically the buckets. And I like to work with those providers and piggyback off of their recommendations about what they're yeah. seeing and what's helpful for the client as regard to strategies for, for cognitive rehab. Yeah. I'm curious if you could share a little bit more about attention, particularly. I know attention is one area that's significantly affected for many people. And you know, that's assuming that their attention was pretty okay beforehand. Right. That's, you know, that's a good point because a lot of times we have to look at that, what we call pre-morbid functioning. Yeah. What, how were they functioning before? Did they have ADHD before? Then we know they're probably going to have more attention issues after. And so that does that does have an impact. But yes, so attention is probably one of the biggest issues that clients talk to me about. And there's multiple, again, ways to work with clients with that. So a lot of the strategies that we, we know, like executive functioning tools and strategies are really helpful for them. Uh, also consulting with a doctor. So some of my brain injury clients have benefited from a stimulant medication during their work hours. So they've taken like, you know, an Adderall and that's been really helpful for them. Uh, again, coming up with that system for them, particular to their work. You know, I work with teachers or nurses. And so it's looking at their particular work system or whatever they're doing. If it's students, it's a little bit different, you know, like breaking down things into chunks. You know, sometimes it's reducing stimulation. If they have a big sheet of paper covering up part of that work, so any way that we can chunk things up, 
make things more manageable for people, that's going to generally be helpful with helping their attention. As you said, that's one of the areas that's most impacted for so many people. And I find, at least with the clients with whom I've worked, it can be a challenge to try and find that contextual solution that that works. Like you said, just looking at their environment and how they need to use their attention and how to improve that. And sometimes mindfulness strategies I've found useful in those. But as you said, it's a lot of the same types of things that we might recommend when doing an evaluation and you know, helping a student who's with an ADHD diagnosis, trying to help them chunk or break things down. Yeah. Yeah. So very similar to that. We're going to try to chunk, chunk tasks into smaller tasks. We're going to, you know, kind of look at, okay, what is the big thing that we want to do? You know, a lot of times in our rehab, they would cook with clients. So they would try to help them think about cooking through a recipe and trying to organize all of that. That takes a lot of aspects of your brain function. So it takes attention, it takes memory, it takes visual processing, the the measuring and things like that, timing. So that is inherently executive functioning. So sometimes clients will experiment with, with recipe at home. Sometimes they need someone around at first yeah. to help with that. But gradually people say, you know, yeah, I did work on that. Some of my male clients aren't so much on the cooking, so they would do other projects in our rehab, like they'd have them do birdhouses or woodworking type things. I've had several clients that did more kind of like tinkering type projects that were helpful for them to kind of work on those skills specifically. But that was more in the context of OT, like OT would more work with them on that side of things. And I would piggyback an outpatient, you know, I would just kind of help them more on task specific things with adults or with adolescents or teens, I would help them kind of think about their schoolwork and what they needed to organize and how they needed to organize that information. So I think I I just generally looked at the problem and and helped them break down those steps, what they needed to do first and identifying clearly like first, second, third, like how are we, how are we chunking that information? Yeah. And again, coming back to what you've said all along that our brain body, they're integrated. And when we bring our attention back to those core pillars you talked about at the beginning, those are also going to impact attention, of course, as well, yeah. right? When we're focusing on sleep and movement and, and what we're and eating. Of, so. Yeah, those pillars kind of help the baseline. So if we can work on those pillars, that's going to like increase and bring up that baseline that they can, their cognitive load pretty much. And other things can impact that, like relationships impact that. All kinds of things can impact that. But if we can help create some change there, that hopefully that creates more capacity. But sometimes it's just they have a two-hour work period. And yeah. that's, that's what they have before they get into cognitive overload. Yeah. It's very different and unsettling because maybe they were a high-achieving person before. Maybe they could spend eight hours on the computer and that's just not something they can do anymore. So right. it's kind of trying to get them to step up that time little by little and really look at those holistic building blocks, which people are like, everybody talks about nutrition every time. <laughs> <laughs> and they get kind of tired of it. But, you know, I keep I keep beating the drum because I know yeah. it's important and it's helpful because it's hard to hold, hold all those things together. Yeah. And so it's more about I help people create rhythms and routines versus like overhauls. Yes. I love that. I love that reframe. And I love the idea of following a recipe as, as part of that. That's such a, something I hadn't thought of before, but I really, really love that. And I can see why that could be effective for, for many people. 
Yeah. So I think it has been for several people that I've I've seen. And I used to love, you know, getting in the kitchen and at, at the neuro rehab center. I got to do a lot of different things that I didn't, I don't usually get to do like an outpatient. So I sewed with clients, like I'd help them. I sew, I, I used to sew before kids. It's anyway, <laughs> when I was in my training, I didn't have children. So I was quilting and on my sewing machine. So I, I sewed with several clients. And so they use a lot of different uh, things to really help the brain learn and grow, uh, you know, whether it be games, you know, using games to kind of help that memory. Maybe it's Scrabble or other kinds of board games that kind of incorporate some other part cognitive processes. Where it's fun too. Like we can't forget the fun. Yeah. Because a lot of times recovering from a brain injury is not fun at all. Yeah. So encouraging clients, you know, is there any way that you can kind of find glimmers of fun and enjoyment in your day? Because sometimes they're struggling with pain. Yeah. Struggling, you know, in a lot of things, there's a lot of loss. So, you know, and fatigue. So fatigue is huge. That's one of the biggest symptoms I didn't mention. So often battling that fatigue and their their capacity is one of the biggest things that I talk about with folks and that they get frustrated about because yeah. they just want to push, they want to push. But they if they know they push, then they're going to kind of set themselves back for a day or two and that's right. really unsettling for them. Right. This has all been so helpful. And before we sort of wrap up the this piece, the TBI piece, I just want to go back to some of the myths you had mentioned, some myths that many of us are outdated science, perhaps, that many, many people still hold on to this notion of being in the dark for two weeks, for example. Are there any other sort of outdated beliefs about recovery from TBI that that should be mentioned? Yeah, I think a lot of people have heard you're going to know how recovered you will be after a year of your recovery. So. Neuroplasticity tells us that you can continue to create more neural connections throughout your life. So, and I think telling people they're going to be where they're going to be just doesn't provide any hope or, (laughs) you know, it's just not productive for them either really to kind of say like, this is all you're going to get. And that's the message they get from doctors sometimes is that some, some, I think it needs to be based in reality. Like if you have a moderate to severe TBI, some you will have significant issues throughout your life, most likely. And still, some people have recovered a great deal. So some people said, the doctor said, I'll never walk again. And look at me now, I'm walking and I'm doing you know, X, Y, and Z. So I think to kind of package that like encouragement and hope with reality at the same time, is it's nuanced, but I think it's possible. I think when you're talking about that balance, that's so critical, whether you're a clinician or whether you're somebody supporting someone with a TBI, because, you know, you can have these people who are overly positive and just not acknowledging the trauma and loss that goes with that, because we're just glossing over it being like, I know you're just going to work hard with this PT or whatever, and it's going to be great. And you'll be back to normal in no time but just completely glossing over. And then you have the other side, like you said, where if they're hearing a message of this is how it's going to be, and there's not going to be growth after that, seemingly arbitrary to some other people measure of time, that's going to impact somebody's outlook and, and hopefulness and positivity, which obviously impacts their mental health and their physical health. Yeah, 100%. 
knowing that you are this brain health specialist, I'm curious if there's any tips beyond TBI that that we could get into quickly. And I'm thinking more about the fact that there are so many productivity hacks that are discussed in the popular culture currently. So I thought, while I have your brain here, I could pick your brain about, about that. And so what are your thoughts about why there's so many productivity hacks out there and why so many of them don't seem to work for people. Yes. It makes me mad. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you know, you just, you can just like, you know, hack the science of your brain and just, you know, do layer. I kind of see it like, you know, those, the pillars of brain health is, is your foundation for brain health and for, you know, well-being. And if you don't have those there, you can try to add the higher level stuff on top of it. But really, it's like a house built on sand. So you can try it. You can try doing all the time blocking and, you know, layering on all these productivity things that you want to do. But if your nutrition is in the gutter, you're not moving, you know, you don't have any people that really know you. I mean, know you, like know your life, know what you're going through every day and you're not sleeping there's just, there's not much happening on upper level cognitive processes that's, that's happening in your brain. So I would say you have to have the basics down before you can build the house. Yeah. Time blocking. If you haven't actually blocked time for sleep is rather irrelevant. Yes. I want to end by asking you the question that I ask all of my guests, which is what is the best piece of advice that you've received from either a colleague or a supervisor? Is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, you know, I thought it was injury specific, but I always kind of tell my clients this is, and it's not like a super empowering one, but it's true. I mean, I think it's it's true with brain injury. You know, if someone who's experienced a brain injury isn't sad, there's something wrong. So there's, I think there's inherent loss in this particular problem for a lot of folks that go through it. And so normalizing that likely you're going to respond to that loss and that will look like sadness and sadness is normal. I think that has stuck with me that I've communicated that to my clients that you're not crazy. This, you're not wrong for feeling the way you're feeling. And I think just to validate that for the folks that go through this particular concern. So important, especially as people may be, as we said, trying to cheerlead them on without necessarily acknowledging that sadness. So such a valuable piece of advice. Dr. Jen, if people do want to learn more from you in these other ways that you've mentioned, how can they find you? Yeah. So my website is tbitherapist.com and I'm on social media at that handle as well at tbitherapist. So you can slide into my DMs if you want or uh, find my website. So I'm also going to be doing some consulting uh, work as well. So if people want to have questions about this work, I'm open to that. That's wonderful. And of course, it'll be linked in the show notes for people to access it easily. And I wish you a wonderful transition into this new professional role for you. Wonderful. Thank you for joining me today. Yes, it was awesome. Thanks so much. And now lessons from the couch. Despite the fact that trauma is in the name traumatic brain injury, we often think about the trauma being the physical hit to the brain, rather than also focusing on the emotional trauma that may result from a TBI. Addressing the TBI through a trauma-informed lens is what makes psychologists particularly well-suited to supporting clients and helping them to unpack that interplay between anxiety and recovery.
Dr. Jen's point about any hits to the head being trauma triggers that may then result in flares of symptoms is a critical point that I felt super valuable in understanding how to support TBI recovery. I think our time is done for today, but I look forward to continuing this conversation next time.